You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. America decides. We'll get the latest as the US goes to the polls. Africa elides. We'll hear about consensus at COP27. And Scotland derides. There's much ridicule as Perth Museum is named Perth Museum. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests Stephanie Bolzen and Robin Lustig will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll speak to our Washington correspondent Chris Chermak and our Carlotta Rabello, who's in Sharm El Sheikh. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Hello, this is the Monocle Daily and I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined today by Stephanie Bolzen, London correspondent for Die Welt, and by the journalist and broadcaster Robin Lustig. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, what's your focus been on this week, Stephanie? I've been trying to find out a little bit more about what the newish British Prime Minister is achieving in his talks with uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, because they, they met on the, on the fringe of the COP27 um, summit in Egypt. And um, as we know, the British government has a problem and a challenge um, in the channel regarding migrants. And now the British government is uh, saying, oh, there's, uh, there's a deal almost there. We are almost having a deal with the French to cooperate. My impression is from what I heard and found out today, if there's a deal, it's very, very thin. Oh, really? I mean, I love those photographs of, of Sunak and Macron coming together. You wanted a soundtrack like, I had the time of something kind of romantic, as they looked as if they were running in slow motion into each other's arms. And actually, physically, they're quite similar, aren't they? Yeah, they are quite, uh, yeah, the statue, they have, uh, they're not very tall, not very big, let's put it this way. <laughs> but I think um, what is true, I think, is that for the French, at least, uh, they are relieved that uh, Sunak is now prime minister because the prime ministers before Sunak, it was a rather difficult relationship. Yeah, not just the French that are relieved. Robin, how about you? Well, you know, it's November, it's London, uh, I'm a Brit, so I've been talking about the weather. It's cold and wet <laughs> and dark, um, but actually I've been thinking about the climate because of the conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, obviously. Mm. And I'm quite pleased that at least once a year when these conferences take place, uh, the media do pay attention to the climate crisis. Well, and there's such a move at the moment, this is particularly on social media, um, about getting the, getting the media to just pay attention all of the time. A lot of those climate activists are now turning their lenses on us, going, why aren't you saying something about this every single day? Exactly, exactly so. And it seems to me if there is no other reason why these conferences are worth holding, it's precisely that. It's to force us in the media to pay attention and actually to give it some coverage because it is the most important thing that's going on in the entire planet. Yeah. Well, of course, much attention is on the United States at the moment. Our Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak, is in Pennsylvania, where the race for the Senate is on a knife edge. Uh, Chris, we uh, spoke earlier today. You said that turnout would be key. How's it looking so far in Pennsylvania? 
Yeah, hi, Georgina. Uh, it is looking quite robust, I have to say, turnout. I mean, there's there's a couple of different ways you can look at turnout in this election in particular, Georgina. One is early voting. So a lot of people did vote already ahead of today. More than 40 million people voted either by mail-in ballot or going to early early open polling stations. Um, that is a very high number. It's higher than 2018. The last midterms, not quite as high as 2020, but that was, of course, a presidential election in a pandemic where more than 100 million people voted mail-in or early. Um, but that is a good sign for Democrats because this is one of these strange things that we're seeing in this election, frankly, Georgina, this sort of separation of how people vote here in the United States. Democrats are more likely to vote early or by mail-in. Republicans are more likely in part because of Donald Trump's, well, false allegations that there is something wrong with mail-in ballots. Republicans are more likely to vote on the day. So that's why it is going to be key to really see what the turnout is like today. I can tell you from sort of anecdotal evidence, interestingly, I was at a rally of uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz yesterday uh, in Pennsylvania, just, just north of, of Philadelphia, sort of towards Bethlehem area. And one of the interesting parts to that point of turnout was it was very full, with lots of people, very animated. Somebody asked them, have you voted yet? Only maybe, a, I'd say, about half a dozen people put up their hands. It shows you that difference that basically all of them, despite being animated, are going to vote today. So that's going to be key, Georgina. But I wonder how much the impact of early or in-mail voting uh, will uh, impact on, on the reporting of the results. I mean, we can't expect them, or certainly not most of them, tonight. Yes, it is going to have a big impact on the results. That is one of the other things to get used to here in the United States. It means that there is a good chance we will not have some key results tonight like we have in past elections. Obviously, this happened in 2020. It's part of the reason that Donald Trump was able to claim that there was something going on with the election because Republicans were leading early on. And then as mail-in ballots trickled in, uh, the Democrats started to gain in the presidential race and others. That is likely to happen again this time around. To give the example of Pennsylvania, mail-in ballots can only be counted on the day uh, of the election, so starting today. And it's a more cumbersome process. You have to open the envelope. You have to check everything. You have to put it through a machine. So it takes longer than, than counting those ballots that are done on the day. So if this is a close election, which it is likely to be between Dr. Mehmet Oz on the Republican side and John Fetterman of the Democrats, then yes, it could take an extra 24 hours. It could take a couple of days. And you have the same thing in some of the other close elections that we have. Nevada, Arizona is another one where, for example, mail-in ballots uh, only need to be postmarked by today. So they could even come in a few days later by mail. So those are the kind of things that, that make this election uh, make it, you know, it's going to take a while for results to come in, but that also makes it, you know, worrisome a, a little bit in terms of there's, there's that uncertainty is rife for some candidates to certainly sort of push themselves into that and suggest that there is something untoward, which there certainly isn't, about mail-in ballots and the process. Uh, but the Washington Post is just reporting now that uh, DeSantis says that the Justice Department cannot send monitors to three Florida counties. I mean, that, that would suggest then some kind of uh, uh, gerrymandering is probably not the right word, but that some dishonesty going the other way. 
Well, it's a hard thing to say, Georgina. You know, this is this is a strange one. It it is part of this desire, I have to say, also by the federal government and by others to monitor in a way that they haven't perhaps before. So if you look at the Justice Department, they're expanding their monitoring of elections. Elections are something that are run by the states here, it has to be said. So as much as there are worries about certain states and how they will be running their elections, that is their purview. Now, the Justice Department does have a right to send monitors. They've done that in the past, but they've kind of doubled, uh, as I, I believe, the number of monitors that they're sending to different polling stations around the country. And yes, in this extremely partisan environment that we are in right now, of course, Ron DeSantis in Florida is making is making something of that. He is acting as if this is partisan in the other direction and Democrats are trying to, you know, monitor something. They have no right, the federal government has no no right to monitor. So it does just show, I think, how partisan the elections have become, how partisan the running of elections have become here. I will say at the same time, you know, most of the indications that I get at least are that this election certainly is still going to be run relatively smoothly. There will be a number of challenges. There's legal challenges everywhere, <laughs> um, uh, you know, in so many different states. But the people on the ground, the people running the elections, when you go to the polling stations here, when you go to vote, it all feels a little bit like much ado about nothing, uh, you know, in, in terms of the atmosphere at the actual polling stations and how this is being done. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything will run smoothly today, despite all of the noise that we're hearing from, from both sides. Chris Chermack in Pennsylvania, many thanks. Well, let's bring in our panellists now, Stephanie Bolzen and Robin Lustig. Uh, if the Democrats lose in both houses, Robin, what does that mean for the United States? I think it's very bad news for the United States for two reasons, really. First of all, it means that uh, the current incumbent at the White House, Joe Biden, is pretty much stymied for the rest of his term. It's not unprecedented for a president from one party to have to contend with a Congress controlled by the other party, but it does mean that there is very little he can get done. He can get certain things done, but not anything like as much as he would like to. The other thing which Chris was just talking about, uh, which does worry me, is the prospect of legal challenges to close results, because Donald Trump and a fair section of the Republican Party have now become absolutely convinced that early voting, mail-in voting, is by its nature suspect, and therefore they will be making legal challenges that will tie up some of the results uh, in the courts for a period of time. And, and I think it will deepen the mistrust that an increasing number of Americans have in the democratic process. And that bodes very ill for the next presidential election in two years' time when the same thing will happen again. Yes. Uh, Stephanie, how will Republican control of both houses, if it happens, uh, impact the US's relation with Europe? Well, there is, of course, the first and most current question, of course, what does that mean for supporting Ukraine in the war, uh, or rather in uh, Vladimir Putin's war in, in Ukraine? And, of course, uh, it's, uh, it's no, uh, common knowledge that uh, the Republicans certainly are not as supportive as the Democrats are, as Joe Biden is. So there's a, a worry in um, in, in Europe, what that might mean, um, and especially now when we see that uh, Ukraine is just about to make some gains in uh, in the south of Ukraine and maybe even in the east of Ukraine. But I think also, uh, as Robin just said, it's looking to the 2024 election and what that might mean 
um, preparing the path for Donald Trump to get back into the White House. Mm. Let's continue to talk about Ukraine because we know that both the, the right and the far left in US politics feel that the bill to support Ukraine may be too high. The Washington Post again is reporting that US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has held talks with Putin in the hope of minimising the risk of a nuclear war. Now, Kyiv remains resolute that Russia must relinquish all Ukrainian territory before negotiations can begin. Uh, Robin, Russia has become a pariah nation, yet the US is keeping diplomatic channels open. Is that the right approach? I think it is the right approach if one is very clear about what they are talking about. As I understand it, what is being reported is that the talks between Washington and Moscow have been about nuclear threats and the very real risk of a misunderstanding between the two major nuclear powers about who's planning to do what. So if there is an open channel of communication about that, I think it's a very good thing. If the two powers, the US and Russia, were to start talking about the shape of a possible deal in Ukraine, I think that would be a very bad thing if the Ukrainians were not an absolutely key party to those talks, because what happens in Ukraine and the nature of any eventual end of the conflict is a matter for the Ukrainians to sort out for themselves. Yeah. Stephanie, do you think it's the right approach, keeping these channels open? Of course, you, you you need to keep talking to to Russia and even to to Vladimir Putin. Again, the story in the Washington Post. We don't know how much of that is true and how much of that has happened. What is interesting, indeed, is that uh, Vladimir Putin's threats about um, nuclear about using nuclear weapons has tuned down. Also, and he even talked about um, some some agreements to be found about nuclear disarmament lately. So. It's a, it begs the question, what has happened between Washington and Moscow lately? Um, why is there, a, say, a bit calmer tone coming out of uh, Russia? What I found really interesting in this reporting is that some see it in the context of um, the uh, offensive, the, uh, that is, uh, the Ukrainian um, troops are currently undergoing in the south of Ukraine and that they might take back Kherson, the, the southern part, and that would put Ukraine on a more equal footing to Russia to then maybe start negotiations. But I completely agree. If you talk to Ukrainians, um, and I regularly do with Ukrainians who live in Ukraine and go through the worst atrocities, they see them, they have lost loved ones, they had to flee the country, to imagine that they would agree to a quick peace deal with Russia is not Feasible. I mean, Robin, do you think it, this is perhaps a case of backroom channels? It's military and civil service personnel trying to mitigate the actions of their leaders and, and not official talks per se. Well, it, it's difficult to characterise them, isn't it? Because, I mean, in the bad old days of the Cold War, when there was a, a real threat of a major nuclear conflict between what was then the Soviet Union and the United States, there was what was known as the hotline which was a direct channel of communication between Moscow and Washington, which could be used whenever there seemed to be a risk or a threat that uh, things were going to go wrong. I think if that were to be used or something similar to that were to be used, that, that is a good thing. But I come back to my original point. It is not for Washington to start negotiating with Moscow about the shape of a deal in Ukraine. And I think the Ukrainians will know that the 
risk they run, as you were alluding to, Georgina, is that uh, fatigue begins to set in in the US, perhaps as a result of a change in Congress, and therefore the financing of the military aid to Ukraine begins to come under threat. And that could be quite serious for mm. them. I mean, exactly this. Zelensky's senior advisor said it was absurd to suggest that Western countries could push Kiev to negotiate on Moscow's terms. But then his reasoning was, they are the ones supplying Ukraine with the weapons to drive Russian forces off their land. Is that relevant? Of course, it is relevant. But um, yeah, the fatigue, the fatigue aspect is uh, is a very important one here. And um, we are now getting into the winter. We started we started talking about it actually at the, at the beginning of the show about now the cold kicking in. People in Europe having to heat their houses. Uh, there will be more and more public discontent about the high energy prices and the question, how long is this war going to go on? But I, I, I am on the side of the Ukrainians that they have to decide when is the time and the conditions to go into any negotiations with Russia. And of course, after all Ukraine has lost, I mean, it's almost unthinkable to see Kiev compromising in any way. It's very difficult to talk about compromise, isn't it, when you are the victim of an unprovoked aggression, an unprovoked invasion. It is not surprising that the Ukrainian position should be, as they have said time and again, there is nothing to negotiate until the Russians withdraw from Ukrainian territory. Now, the Russians aren't going to withdraw from Ukrainian territory anytime soon, certainly not as long as Vladimir Putin remains in the Kremlin. So it's hard to see where any compromises could be at the moment. But yes, as Stephanie says, winter is coming. Winter is a very difficult time for any kind of military activity uh, in Central Europe. So we'll see what happens over the next three to six months. But I don't think there is any realistic prospect of things changing dramatically in the near future. Mm. As we've been discussing, the attitude of the US remains unknown until we know yeah. the result of this election. Here in Britain, our new Prime Minister seems to be just as resolute on Ukraine. What is the attitude now coming from the government in Germany? It is the same. It's also as resolute as or even, let's say, it's rather more resolute now than it was probably at the beginning. And also public opinion in Germany is still very much supportive um, of uh, providing Ukraine with weapons. That wasn't the case at the beginning, despite the now famous Zeitenwender that Olaf Scholz announced three days after the war started. But for the time being, at least the government is absolutely adamant in Germany that um, the support of Ukraine is is crucial and that it must continue. Um, what is interesting in Germany, I think, and that's a little bit of a success story, how much Germany has already managed to um, shorten the dependency on Russian uh, gas. I mean, that is now, I think, down to 10% or something. It was more than 55% before the war started. So in that sense... Well, hopefully there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel that uh, some countries manage to diversify quicker than you would have expected. Well, let's stay with energy because it's time now to cross to Egypt, where world leaders, NGOs, activists and civil society have gathered for the annual United Nations Climate Conference, or COP27. The event has returned to the African continent after a six-year hiatus, and the region wants to make the most of having the world's focus on them. High on the agenda is the issue of climate reparations, or what the UN calls loss and damage payments, which would see wealthier nations pay back developing ones for the damages they've suffered from climate change caused mostly by the developed world. Monocle's Carlotta Rabello is at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh for us, and earlier she caught up with Hastings Shikoko, who is the regional director 
Director for Africa for the C40 Climate Leadership Network. Carlotta asked Hastings about this year's location and if it matters that COP has returned to Africa. To me, location does matter because what the location does, it brings the global community closer to the realities that are typical for that location. For many years, we have been pushing for this kind of gathering to focus on adaptation. We have been pushing for this kind of platform to focus on climate injustice. The fact that the actions of the rich countries are the ones that actually cause the problem, but the impact is felt in geographies such as where we are today in Africa. What this means, bringing COP in an African context, is that we actually succeed to put some of the issues that are closer to the location on the table. This is why you see the Egyptian government, they have tried to actually put adaptation on the agenda as a strong, a much, 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 much stronger focus from the previous COP. And you have also seen the issue of loss and damage, which is also on the agenda of this COP, something that is really, really, really of interest to a geography such as Africa. So to me, this fact that we move these gatherings in different locations, it helps us to mobilize the community around that location who could not have otherwise traveled to longer, to faraway locations, to come to that location and strengthen the voice on things that matter to that particular geography. And perhaps it helps as well for those with a more, you know, northern, western hemisphere view of the world to see you cannot afford to have inaction. Inaction costs lives. Definitely, it does. Right now we, we are in Egypt. When we talk about impacts of climate change, water scarcity is one of the issues that uh, we are dealing with which may not be an issue in some of the geographies. The fact that they are here, they are seeing the aridity of this particular context, could be a wake-up call to say, wait a minute, what are we doing about this? And maybe it really changes the whole consciousness and the whole interest and um, really focus on these issues. But you mentioned their climate injustice and the issue of um, climate reparations has been across the media ahead of this COP. What's your view on it? I think the main thing here is to recognize that the impacts of climate change are in geographies that are disadvantaged. And um, to just make sure that there is um, a focus on fair share and also there is a focus on investing in solutions across the board especially in these areas where the impact is high. One big point I would like to make here is around financing. The richer countries are rich because of the fossil fuel heavy activities that they did decades ago that have placed us where we are. Those activities are creating impacts in countries that did not do that. I think it's fair to say rich countries, could you consider to really transfer some resources, finances, to address the impacts of climate change in, in, in geographies that do not have the capacity to do that. Because, of course, they did not 
actually industrialize area and right now they are actually on the path of industrialization but of course they are taking a more responsible pathway when you you say this of course you the terms of reparation come in and sometimes they bring emotions but it's just about being fair being just and ensuring that there is financing that has been pledged it's not like we are talking about something that was not there richer countries made pledges in terms of climate financing for starters to be just can't we just start from there and honor our pledges and then we can have a conversation in terms of what we do next Hastings Chikoko there speaking to Carlotta Rebello in Sharm el-Sheikh. Well, Stephanie, let's pick up on what he's saying about climate justice. He says rich countries have failed to live up to their promises to cut emissions and to provide finance to help the poor with climate breakdown. Should first world nations be paying, though? Is it the responsibility of countries to pick up those bills? I think it's definitely the responsibility of richer countries and industrial countries to to pay, to compensate. Um, but if we talk about the um, the 100 billion that was agreed last year in Glasgow, well, they f- first should maybe start paying this money because I think hardly any of this money has been paid into the fund that was um, planned for that. When it comes to the loss and damage idea, I'm, I'm not so sure if this is really... Um, helping because you can already see it was written in some some document the idea of compensation loss and damage paying to poorer countries um, for example if like now in the case of Pakistan uh, after the floods and that is very very controversial and I think um, a lot of time and energy and actually anger is now spent on discussing loss the loss and damage proposal instead of pushing those things that are more easy to realize then or to to put into practice than this one mm. um, and also um, some countries already I mean the industrial countries are opposing this because they are saying oh well um, we we can't really control where the funds are going and um, in the future poorer countries every every flood or every um, weather problem will then be declared a climate change um, caused uh, incident and we have to pay for it. So I think, I don't think anybody does um, himself or herself a a favour by putting this now into the focus of the debate. I mean, is it just the countries or should international organisations, for instance, the World Bank, be picking up these bills? It seems to me that the principle is, is pretty clear. Um, there is no doubt that some of the countries which are suffering worst from the change in climate are the poorer, least industrialised countries, and that they are suffering from what we, the richer industrialised countries, have done over the past 150, 200 years. They are therefore, it seems to me, perfectly justified in saying, hey, the, the problems we are suffering now are in part at least down to you. So what are you going to do about it? There is one other issue as well, which I don't think is sufficiently discussed. If any significant impact is to be made by the way in which we change our habits in order to slow the process of climate change, we need to have the poorer countries on side because they are still industrialising. They still want to uh, go for economic growth. And part of that, unless we find some way to encourage them not to, will be by burning carbon fuels. So it's in our own interests as well 
to help the less industrialized countries to find a carbon-free future. I agree entirely with Stephanie that the nitty-gritty of it is ferociously complex, and there is a danger that we get bogged down in in something which won't have a direct effect on on the way in which we can change what's going on. Mm. So I think the principle is unarguable. I think the uh, practicalities are horrendously difficult. I'm all in favor of people talking about it, but I do want the talk to be translated into action as well. Because, I mean, Stephanie, there are sort of some suggestions saying that, well, perhaps there could be loans instead of grants, but then you get into the whole thorny uh, issue of uh, places like China and Russia using the less industrialized nations as as basically their factories. I mean, I mean, so how far should people accept, should less developed nations accept help? Well, of course, of course they should and uh, they, they want to, but you have to make sure, as Robin just said, that this is a, a smooth process and I doubt that um, such complex, I mean, it starts with the definition. How do you define, how can you prove that what has happened in your country is uh, caused by climate change? And again, um, I'm, I'm sure there will be no agreement at all at this COP and I can see uh, the international community still discussing that at COP. 45. Mm. I mean, just this is related to that fact, uh, Robin. I noticed that my president, Emerson Munangagwa of Zimbabwe, managed to get himself front and centre of the group photograph. As we know, they're targeted sanctions on some Zimbabwean individuals, including him, because of human rights abuses, corruptions endemic there. Should nations that don't believe in accountability have access to funds? It's a very difficult issue. I, I think one needs to be very clear about what funds are being made available to do what with. Um, if you earmark funds and you say, look, you need to build flood defences. Here is X million dollars to build flood defences. There are ways of ensuring that that money is spent for the use for which uh, it is designed. It's not easy to do. It's never completely perfect. Of course, money always disappears along the way, but uh, it, it can be done. I mean, that, the whole principle of development aid is built on, on that, and there's quite a lot of experience in doing it. But yeah, I mean, the countries which are suffering most, I mean, we've seen Pakistan, we've seen other countries around the world, serious, serious climate issues, which undoubtedly are at least in part caused by the activities of us in the industrialised West, then, yeah, we have a responsibility to help. Stephanie, in a world that's increasingly so divided, do you think there's any way that there can be global consensus on climate? I think there is already consensus on climate in general. Um, if you look at the at the Glasgow summit last year, of course, um, it is a very relative one. I remember the moment on the Saturday when they had been negotiating and negotiating and Alok Sharma, the British, so to say, president of the climate conference, he was crying. And then the very last moment, the Indian, I think it was the environment minister said, no, we don't want coal to be phased out. We want coal to be phased down. And just the change of word from out to down makes a massive difference. So, mm. But they're moving forward. If you look at China, for example, China, the um, emissions in China will peak according to their plan, and they usually stick to their plan in 2030. But by 2060, they want to be um, net zero. So, I mean, I think in everything we're discussing, we should stay a little bit optimistic. I mean, I think the acceptance of net zero as a goal is a huge step forward. I mean, I can remember, what, 
Five years ago, certainly ten years ago, net zero was almost laughed out of court as something that people should be aiming for. Now it is mm. almost universally accepted as, as a goal that everybody should be striving towards. Yeah. Now, there's been a lot of agreement in Scotland. In 2024, a new museum will open in Perth. The public were consulted on a name for the institution and 60% of them settled on the accurate but slightly unimaginative moniker of Perth Museum. <laughs> what else might it have been called, Stephanie? I, I, I don't know about the Scottish, but it was kind of reflecting about names for, for public places. And a, a good place to go for to have very funny names of public places is Berlin. Because um, if, if, if you speak, you need to speak German and you need to speak German quite well to understand the Berlin humor because it's very raw and it's very rough. And Berliners have actually dozens of places in the German capital which have weird names and, and also quite um, respectless names. So I will not, uh, not uh, we are on air, so I will um, not <laughs> name those oh, no. that are actually not uh, supposed to We want to, be. to hear them. No, I, I won't do that. But um, I mean, some people, for example, know the... Um, the Brandenburg Gate and this long uh, avenue that goes towards the west, and there's the Victoria. There's a, there's a, like a like a pillar, like a column with a golden Victoria on top. The Berliners call it Gold Else, the Golden Else, which is uh, not very respectful for such a grand, beautiful um, a monument. Or there is a very weird place in Steglitz in the south of Berlin, and they have this um, restaurant in a little concrete tower, which is absolutely appallingly ugly and they call it the beer pinsel no one knows why the beer pinsel is the beer brush well you can have beer there it looks a bit like a brush but like a painting <laughs> brush yeah but no no one knows and it, the list goes on and on and t some of the stuff is centuries old it's very funny but again it's it's kind of raw uh, I mean, who can forget the, the British Boaty McBoatface? Remind <laughs> us of that, Robin. Well, Boaty McBoatface was a wonderful uh, example of why it can sometimes be a mistake to ask the public to come up with a name for something. It was a uh, polar research vessel, I think, which was being commissioned. And uh, for some reason, the, the, the British public were asked to come up with ideas to name this ship. And uh, what began as a joke suddenly became a sort of viral sensation and Boaty McBoatface turned out to be the most popular name. Um, having consulted the public, uh, the owners of the vessel then completely ignored them and, <laughs> and, and called it the Sir David Attenborough, uh, which is, is more respectful but, but, but probably less funny. I'm actually a believer in giving things names which tell you what you want to know. What I object to about calling something the Perth Museum is it tells me nothing about what's in the museum. I mean, I know where it is. It's in Perth. Fine. I want it to be called the Perth Museum of Culture and History or the Perth Museum of Art and History. I want to know something. I want to know what's in the ten. Huh. Um, and it seems to me that one of the mistakes that was made in the past about museums and art galleries it was that they tended to be named after the people who'd coughed up the cash to build them. And that has often come back to haunt people later on. We have found in this country, for example, Tate Modern, Tate Britain, named after people who uh, made their fortune trading sugar on the back of enslaved people. Uh, there are many other galleries around the world which uh, have been named after a corporation or a family in the United States which is now held to have been responsible for the opioid epidemic which has swept across the country. They're now renaming them. So, yes, I'm in favour of the Museum of 
Art, the Museum of History. Tell me what's in it and I will gladly go. Uh, it is very dangerous, though, I think, to get the public to vote. And I think one man is about to find out all about this. So there's a new season of a reality programme called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here on British television. The series is filmed in the Australian jungle and a dozen or so people with media profiles compete in various trials to be crowned the winner. The trials are always unpleasant, from diving into alligator tanks to eating ostrich anus or wallaby penis. And we're told that on the show tonight, uh, the former UK Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, who of course was fired uh, and who many people here hold responsible for dealing with COVID very badly, will enter the camp. What do you think might lie in store for him, Stephanie, given that we get to choose? I definitely will not watch this. And it, the whole time I only I'm reading, of course, the Matt Hancock going into the jungle and doing all sorts of things. It only reminds me that he has actually his experiences with um, cameras filming him when he actually might think he is not being filmed, which was that he didn't keep the two meters apart from his assistant uh, in during the lockdown uh, time and um, uh, consequently had to go. I mean, he's a serving parliamentarian. Should he be there at all? No. Absolutely not. Um, I'm slightly at a disadvantage here because I've never actually watched the programme. I never intend to either. But it does, it just strikes me as so bizarre that somebody who until recently held an extremely responsible position as a senior cabinet minister, as Stephanie says, responsible for the government's response to the COVID pandemic, now demeans himself by popping up in the Australian jungle, eating all kinds of disgusting things in order somehow to recreate himself as a, quote, celebrity, unquote. It's going to come back and bite him in the backside. Uh, and many other things might bite him too. They might if, indeed, if, yes. if the audience phone in get their way and some would arguably say that being in the Australian jungle is not as unpleasant as the Westminster Bed ah, well. <laughs> well I have to go because I'm not nearly as culturally refined as either of you and I intend to watch uh, I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here so that's all for this edition of the 6 o'clock Current Affairs panel discussion show on Monocle 24 formerly known as the Monocle Daily a big thanks to my panellists today Stephanie Bolzen and Robin Lustig and Chris Chermack and Carlotta Rabella for joining us earlier in the show today's programme was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands and our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard, our all-great woman crew. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London and the Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>